Now, I want to introduce our speaker, who is a longtime friend, and I'm honored to call him a friend. He's professor of humanities at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He's previously been a faculty member at the universities of Nottingham and Aberdeen in the UK. And for the academic year 2017-2018, he was the William E. Simon Visiting Fellow in Religion and Public Life on the James Madison program at Princeton University. From 2012 to 2018, he was also pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ambler. And he's the author of a number of books, and many of you in here will probably be familiar with a number of his books, some of which, by the way, are for sale at the bookstore, including most recently his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So it is a real joy for me to, to welcome uh, Carl Truman with us this morning. Now, before Carl comes to speak to us, we're going to sing, ask the Lord's blessing on our time. And so now let's stand, sing together hymn 404, The Church's One Foundation. The Church
pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we commit this morning to you. We thank you for it. This new day is a reminder of your new mercies, for which we are grateful. We thank you for the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope, particularly of eternity, with him. And we ask that even now, as we grow in our discernment during this earthly pilgrimage, that you would strengthen us for the task at hand. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I too would like to start with some words of thanks. Uh, uh, thanks so much to Greenville Seminary for inviting me to speak uh, today, albeit on a rather depressing topic. I suspect I'm going to be the person who brings the bad news uh, to the conference rather than the good news. Uh, and it's always a pleasure to spend some time with uh, John and Liz Master and uh, to see my old friend of many years standing now, uh, Todd Pruitt. I was saying to, to John... And Todd, just a few moments ago, as we were talking about some of the topics that I'm going to cover today, uh, these issues are such uh, that, well, they're so pressing and so challenging and so costly. I said to them that I no longer trust anybody to stand on these issues unless they've already demonstrated that they're prepared to stand. And I made the comment that the majority of the men I trusted on these issues were at that point standing within four feet of me. Uh, I am very concerned that the church is facing a major collapse on the kind of issues that I'm talking about today. I'm also very concerned that it's easy to talk tough about these uh, ideas, problems, etc. In a conference situation... It's easy to talk tough on what I regard as that most cowardly of media, Twitter. It's not so easy to stand when it's actually going to cost you something. And that's what I think is coming. It's going to cost us something to stand on these kind of issues. And therefore, it's important to understand the dynamics of the challenges we face. Secondly, <clears throat> I think it's important as we reflect on these issues to understand the complexity of the problem. For the last 12 months, I've spent uh, much of my spare time, when I'm not teaching at Grove, crisscrossing the United States, speaking uh, to groups about LBGTQ kind of stuff. And pretty much after every time I've spoken, somebody has come up to me and recounted some story of personal tragedy, how their family has been torn apart by the issues of which I speak. Oddly enough, my own family, even my own broader family, has not yet been touched by this. And yet everywhere I speak, I meet people whose faces indicate the pain that these issues are causing to them and the confusion they face. And even this week, uh, on Tuesday, I had a leader from a, a youth camp on campus. Uh, he was visiting campus to recruit for the camp, and he came to see me. And he said, I read your book. Can you tell me what the answer is? Uh, to which my response was, well, there is no answer. There would only be an answer if the problem had a single cause. The transformations we face 
in our understanding of what it means to be a human being at this point in time don't have a single cause. Well, you could say they have sin as their cause. But of course, general explanations of everything don't allow us to address particulars in specific details. So what I want to do in this first lecture is bring out some of the complexity of the situation we now find ourselves in, in order really to set up the play for my second lecture when I will offer not a single solution, but certainly some avenues of reflection for how we might address the problems we face. I specifically want to look in this lecture at how desire, and specifically sexual desire, have become identities in our world. It's very interesting. I did classics as an undergraduate. And uh, anybody who studied classics will, of course, beware, be aware that, that homosexuality was uh, rife in ancient Greece. It was socially acceptable. It was not considered problematic. What's interesting about it, of course, is that nobody in ancient Greece actually considered themselves to be a homosexual. Uh, sex was something you did. It was not something that you are. Now... When a teenager goes to their parents and says, Dad, I, I, I think I might be gay or I might be bisexual, they're not making a statement about any behavior in which they may have engaged. They're speaking about an interpretation of desires they have and using that interpretation to give themselves an identity. Sex has become something that we are, not something that we do. How did that come about? Well. I think it comes about because the way we conceive of ourselves at this moment in time has fundamentally changed over the last three or four hundred years. I should probably define here roughly what I mean by self. There is a commonsensical use of the term self. I could say that I'm aware that I'm me and not Todd Pruitt, for which I am very grateful to the Lord uh, for obvious I was going to say for rather obvious reasons, but um, I, I can't believe he dresses the way he does. It's just... And the shoes. For years I've been talking to him about wingtip brown shoes. They're the only kind that you should wear. Anyway, there's that common sense of the, uh, uh, of the word self, where we are aware of ourselves, we might say, as individual self-consciousnesses. I'm going to use the term today in a deeper sense. When I talk about self in this lecture, I mean, I say, that which makes us tick. That which makes us who we are. That which shapes the way we relate to the world, we relate to others, and we relate to the future. And one of the interesting things, I think, of the last three, four hundred years is that that notion of the self has come to grant increasing authority to what goes on in here. It's come to grant increasing authority to what we might describe as the inner psychological space we all have, or our inner feelings. Now, when I teach this at Grove, students, you know, some bright student will always put up their hand and say, but hasn't there always been an inner space? Look at the Psalms. Look at the feelings that are described in the Psalms. Look at Augustine's Confessions and the inner narrative that takes place in Augustine's Confessions. Hasn't there always been an inner self? Well, yes, there has. The difference now 
is that we grant that inner self, that inner collection of feelings, a supreme authority that is interesting, interesting in the history of humanity. I can illustrate this perhaps by using a rather dramatic example, one that uh, touches on one of the issues that lies behind the lecture this morning. Think of the, the transgender issue. Had you gone to the doctor a hundred years ago and said to your doctor, uh, I think I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would have said to you, that's a problem. Uh, it's a problem of your mind. We need to treat your mind to bring it into conformity with your body. Now, we live in a world where, in some contexts, the doctor might be legally obliged to accept your self-diagnosis and say, that's a problem. It's a problem of your body. We need to bring your body into line with your mind. When you compare and contrast those two scenarios, there are many things we could say about them, but one of them is this. In the second scenario, inner feelings have been granted an authority they did not possess in the first. A tremendous shift has taken place. And that's what I mean by the rise of a new kind of selfhood. The rise of the authority of the inner space over the outward physical reality. Focuses on inner feelings. We are very preoccupied today with how we feel. We tend to define happiness in terms of a psychological feeling of well-being. I've used this example many times, but my grandfather was here today, sheet metal worker from uh, the industrial heartland of England, uh, grew up in the city of Birmingham, went to uh, work in the factory at age 13 or 14 and spent over 50 years as a sheet metal worker doing what I would have regarded as very tedious work, hard, tedious work. If I'd asked my grandfather, did you get job satisfaction? One, he would not even have understood the question. Two... Once I'd explained to him what I meant, he would probably have answered yes, because I get paid a fair day's wage for an honest day's work, and that allows me to put bread on the table and shoes, decent shoes, <laughs> on my children's feet. If you ask me that question, it's great speaking and knowing that Todd does not get the pulpit after me. If you ask me that question, I'm likely to say, yeah, I get a great buzz out of standing in front of a classroom of 18 to 22-year-olds and teaching them complicated ideas and seeing light bulbs go on in their minds as something they didn't understand suddenly grips their imagination. But the satisfaction from my job really comes from how I feel immediately. That's a different kind of self to that of my grandfather. There are other things that we might say flow from this understanding of my inner psychological happiness as being the be-all and end-all. I would suggest it sets up what I would describe as a somewhat adversarial relationship to the world around us. When your personal happiness is the be-all and end-all of your life, everybody else and everything else is first and foremost a threat to you and only once they've proven useful to your happiness, something that you can embrace. I'll give an illustration of that in a couple of moments if that point appears to some of you a little obscure. Secondly, there is a tendency 
in this kind of thinking about selfhood to see the world and indeed other people as just stuff. As something to be molded by my will to fulfill my needs. This has received very sophisticated philosophical uh, exposition. Uh, for example, in the uh, 17th century French philosopher Descartes, there is a great emphasis upon the inner space in Descartes. He's the famous, I think, therefore I am, man. But he also tended to see the world as just stuff. There was him, and then there was the stuff. And there's a rather creepy passage in his uh, discourses where he looks out of the window and he says, I think I see men and women, but maybe I just see hats and coats attached to automata. It's rather sort of, I think, wow, that's a creepy world he lives in. Uh, Though, having said that, when I walk down the streets of Manhattan, uh, I go there once a year for meetings, and I get out as soon as I can. It's like walking down a street of automata. I, I begin to sympathize with Descartes at that point. Karl Marx, his radical materialism, denied any deep intrinsic significance to matter. Matter only had significance to the extent that human beings were able to turn it into stuff. And then, of course, there is, I would regard him as the greatest of 19th century philosophers. He's certainly the most fun to read, Friedrich Nietzsche, for whom the world was really, yeah, just stuff. And things like morality were mystifications, contracts. Nietzsche, in some ways, is the great philosophy, philosopher of the world in which we now live. Give a few examples of how this plays out in modern society. Uh, think about abortion. The basic logic of a man like Peter Singer on abortion is this. The embryo is just stuff. The morality of abortion is therefore determined by whether bringing the stuff to term or not makes the mother more or less happy. I'm reading a book at the moment for a lecture I'm giving on Saturday, uh, a book uh, on uh, surrogacy. Complete Surrogacy Now is the title of the book. It is the angriest book I've ever read, and I've read a few angry books in my time. Uh, The anger expressed by this lady against the idea that a baby grows in the womb is quite striking, and she's open and honest about it. And she has statistics about the health damage that this alien presence causes to women during normal gestation. Think about it. The logic of abortion in our culture today is the embryo is just stuff. It has significance to the extent that it brings or denies happiness to the mother carrying the stuff. That's emblematic of the kind of notion of selfhood that grips the popular imagination. Think of no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce assumes that marriage is a breakable bond to be dissolved once it ceases to meet the emotional needs of the parties involved. It's very interesting when you read essays on the logic of no-fault divorce, children are rarely mentioned because they don't feature in the contract. They're just to be catered for as collateral damage when the relationship falls apart. No-fault divorce essentially operates on the premise that Marriage is to bring happiness to the two people involved, which in a good marriage it certainly, we hope that it does do. But as soon as it ceases to fulfill that function, 
It ceases to be a meaningful bond and can be dissolved. Marriage treats the other partner as, I would say, potentially always adversarial until proved otherwise. Well, I mentioned uh, Descartes, Marx, and Nietzsche already. You might say, well, most people don't read these people, Truman. How is it that this kind of notion that I am my feelings and that the most important thing in my life is my personal happiness and my ability to act out on my inner feelings, how is it that this notion of selfhood has come to grip the popular imagination, given that so few people read Descartes, Marx, Nietzsche, etc., etc.? Well, I want to suggest this is where the problem gets complicated. Because what we're dealing here with is the shaping of our imaginations and our intuitions by forces that are not primarily arguments. I remember in 2015, students asking me, can you give us arguments against gay marriage? And I was saying, I can give you lots of arguments against gay marriage. But none of them will do any good. And the response came, well, why won't they do any good? And my answer was, well, because people don't believe in gay marriage because of an argument. They believe in a gay marriage because their imaginations have been shaped by the culture in such a way that this has first become plausible and then desirable. If only our problems could be solved with an argument, they wouldn't be significant problems. In actual fact, our minds are not primarily shaped by arguments, I think. They're fueled, shaped, informed by less tangible, but in some ways far more deadly things. Consumerism, for example is predicated on a future-oriented myth. That you are dissatisfied now and buying this thing will solve your satisfaction. Will solve your problem. Christians get very concerned about internet pornography, and rightly so. But pornography is not the only deadly thing you can see on a screen. Commercials shape how we imagine the world to be. Commercials are built upon desire, not utility. I'm going to criticize myself at this point, but some years ago, my wife needed a new car. Her car was dying for the first time ever. We bought a new car. And uh, as my wife felt so highly of me for having bought her a new car, uh, I said to her, can I buy a soft, soft sports car? Kids are left home. Can I buy myself a convertible? Always wanted to drive a small convertible. And my wife, in a moment of weakness, said yes. We were driving on the freeway at the time. My son works in the car industry. I pulled over at the next rest stop, and I called my son, and I said, fix it now before your mum changes her mind. <laughs> I love my little, my little Mazda. There is nothing more fun than zipping around the lanes of western Pennsylvania in the summer with the top down. Not so good in the snow, I have to say, with the rear-wheel drive. Uh, and it is a stick shift, by the way. I despise people who don't drive stick. It's, uh, um, I, an electric car strikes me as the abomination of desolation when it comes to automobiles. Though the acceleration is very good, I'm told. But why did I buy that car? It did exactly the same as my old car did. Hey, it did exactly the same as the people carrier we used to have when we were doing Little League soccer. I did it because it met a desire. 
a desire that was first of all created, of course, by the automobile industry. But it made me feel good. It played to my sense of self. Consumerism shapes the way we think about ourselves in the world. Politics, and I would say politics right and left, embodies the psychological therapeutic notions that lie at the heart of this notion of the self, what I call expressive individualism. Right and left, politics is all about satisfying my desires and my vision. Technology, technology above all, I think, shapes our imaginations. The biggest mistake many people make about technology is assuming that what technology does is allow us to do the same things only faster and more efficiently. Technology does not do that. Technology fundamentally mediates how we relate to the world and therefore transforms the nature of that world. My accent gives it away that I'm an immigrant. Had I emigrated in the 17th century, I would have said goodbye to my parents on the dockside at Bristol. I'm from the West Country of England. I'd have left from Bristol knowing that I would never see their faces again, knowing that I would never hear the sound of their voice. I emigrated in 2001 knowing that within 24 hours of arrival, I would hear my parents' voice again. Today, if I did it, I would see their faces again on Zoom. I can go back, well, up until COVID, I could go back and see my mum whenever I wanted. I'm going to see her for the first time in three and a half years, uh, God willing, this summer. I can go back and see my mum with comparative ease. It's not that emigration is faster and more efficient today. It is a fundamentally different experience of the world. The world is smaller in reality, even if physically is it has stayed the same size. Think about music. Think about how we experience music today. I love music. I'm very eclectic. Everything from classical music through to classic rock. Good music ends about 1980, I think, with the death of John Bonham of Led Zeppelin. But by and large, other than the last 40 years of rubbish, there's been a lot of good music out there. How do I experience it? I experience it primarily, privately, and individually. 150 years ago, that would have been impossible. That would have been impossible. To experience music, you'd got to go to where music was being performed, or you'd got to perform it yourself. Technology has not simply made the consumption of music easier, it's made it a fundamentally different experience. Think about the sexual revolution that lies at the heart of much of what I'm talking about here. That is technologically enabled. And it can only be imagined in a technological world. Michael Hanby at the uh, John Paul II Institute for the Family in DC has written numerous times about how the sexual revolution is the technological revolution. Again, don't want to be distasteful, but think, just do a little thought experiment. Uh, imagine in the 19th century, you're a young guy and you want to sleep with a girl. What have you got to do? You've got to be clean. You've got to have a job. You've got to have prospects. You've got to persuade her father, her mother, and her brothers that you're a good bet for the future. Because untrammeled sexual activity carries huge risks in a world before easy contraception and antibiotics. You cannot imagine the world we live in today 
1850. You can't even make that mental leap in 1850 because the technology isn't available. Think about the thought experiments I did with the, uh, the doctor earlier on. The doctor in, let's say, 1922 has to give the answer he gives because he cannot even imagine any other answer. He does not live in a world where hormones and surgery can give the appearance of transforming somebody's sex. The technological revolution has reshaped the way we think about human relationships at their most fundamental level. And it's changed how we think about morality. Morality in the public square has become largely a matter of technique. When we are faced with a, what would once upon a time have been considered a moral crisis, we deal with it now instrumentally, or in terms of technology. When researching my book, I was fascinated by the different responses within the gay community to the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. There was actually a significant contingent within the gay community, the male gay community, that argued that AIDS meant homosexual men had to change their behavior. It was a kind of morality, it was not a morality I would endorse, but it was a kind of moral solution to the problem. It's wrong that we behave this way. Look at the consequences. We need to shape up and change our behavior. They were very quickly eliminated from the narrative in favor of a technological solution. No, what we need is better antibiotics, antivirals, drugs. We need a technical solution because there are no moral problems. AIDS is purely a technical issue. Technology thus fuels our belief in our own sovereignty and in the amoral shape of the world. It allows us to think the world has no moral shape. It makes that plausible. I don't often quote positively the German philosopher Heidegger. I don't often quote him, period. He's so difficult to understand. But I was struck reading his little essay on technology some months ago. He makes a comment to this effect. This is not an exact quotation, but it captures the sense of what he's saying. He says, the most dangerous thing about technology is not that it will produce the capacity for weapons of mass destruction, not that we're all going to get vaporized in a nuclear holocaust. I read the market reports each day, by the way. Getting closer to retirement, you become more interested in the markets, I've discovered. Uh, the uh, a, a Canadian think tank uh, this week raised the possibility of us all being vaporized in a nuclear holocaust this year to 10%. So the good news is we have a 90% chance of survival. Uh, I... I mentioned that to the students who took it as bad news, and I said, well, many of you are graduate. I said, look on the bright side. You may not have to worry about student loans and what you do after graduation <laughs> after all. They didn't seem particularly encouraged by that. So. But Heidegger says, it's not the capacity to produce weapons of mass destruction that is so disturbing. It's that technology will totally dehumanize us in a way that is utterly destructive of what human beings actually are. That's the danger of technology. I might suggest, in concluding this section, that the basic dynamics of what I've described as playing out in modern culture, this emphasis and authorizing of inner feelings, this focus on personal happiness, this idea that ethics is all down to what is pleasing to me rather than what is right or wrong, is found in the fall. 
Listen to Genesis 3.6, a very familiar verse, all of you, I'm sure. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice, three things characterize the fall in Genesis 3. One, there is a focus on aesthetics. It looked good. It was pleasing to the eye. How much of modern morality, how much of our moral imagination today is rooted in what looks pleasing to the eye? Hollywood red carpet, never watch the Oscars myself, but always catch. I'm English, and I say to the students, for something to be really funny, somebody somewhere has to be suffering. So I always watch the news on the day after to have the sort of the ritual humiliation of the dress failures. It's always kind of amusing to see somebody taken down from a cruel English perspective. But one of the powerful things about the Hollywood red carpet is how overwhelming it is aesthetically. And we all want to be like those people. Man, I drive a Mazda, but I would love to drive a Ferrari. We all want to be like those people. You can look at the Hollywood red carpet and you are overwhelmed by the physical outward beauty and power. When you think of the number of broken homes, damaged children, abortions, infidelities that the red carpet represents, you have a different picture. But it doesn't count because it looks pleasing to the eye. Aesthetics. Secondly, technical ability drives moral possibility. She can reach out and take the fruit, so she does reach out and take the fruit. And it embodies a view of the created world as being there for Eve's personal benefit. She takes. And notice the taking involves an assertion, I would say, using modern terms, of identity. Her desire and her action deny the moral shape of the universe. The earth becomes just stuff at that point to Eve. Her desire and her action assert her own sovereign freedom. She becomes the autonomous, expressive self, we might say. And she becomes the one who is the arbiter of good and evil. The text tells us she becomes like God, the arbiter of good and evil. Were her desire for God, her identity would be sound. But it's her desire not the moral shape of the universe and of her own constitution that is foundational to who she is. And, of course, we might say this loss of the image uh, immediately makes others into objects, particularly other human beings. Genesis 4 follows Genesis 3. And there we have Cain slaying his brother Abel. Abel exists to Cain at that point merely as somebody who's in the way and is therefore to be disposed of. Maybe his continued existence is a reminder to Cain of his failure. But the narrative of the text makes it clear the fall leads immediately to other human beings in an adversarial position to the self, first and foremost. Our modern imagination is one where we are Determined to find happiness as individuals. It's the fulfillment of our desires, not our conformity to some external authority that shapes us. And technology has allowed that to escape and go wild. 
at this particular point in time. That brings me to the second section of this talk. How did sexual desire become identity? If we see how desire becomes identity through the fall, through philosophical trajectories, through the impact of consumerism and technology, if all of these things allow our desires, inner desires and feelings to move to center stage, how do these desires get sexualized? There's again an intellectual narrative that I think if I were laying out today, I'd want to include the Marquis de Sade, I would want to include Oscar Wilde, I'd want to include Sigmund Freud. But again, few people, maybe some read Wilde, very few read Freud, hopefully less read Desaad. But think about culture. Commercials didn't just move from utility to desire. Quite often they played to sexual desire. Politics. Politics has moved from seeing oppression in economic terms to seeing it in terms of sexual repression. That's my grandfather. My grandfather was a lifelong union man, uh, a lifelong Labour Party member, I think. Uh, uh, one of the greatest men I ever knew, voted conservative right at the very end of his life. And I remember him saying why. He voted conservative not because he'd become conservative, but because he felt the left had betrayed him. Because for my grandfather, oppression was not being paid a fair day's wage for an honest day's work, not being able to find a job, not being allowed to meet his commitments to other people. And yet the left, even in the 1980s, had become uh, enthralled by the politics of, not of oppression economically, but of repression in terms of identities, specifically sexual identities. The mainstreaming of pornography. Most Christians focus on pornography because of the dangerous lust it promotes. No argument from me there. But I would also say, doesn't it promote a particular notion of what it means to be a person? Sex, designed by God to be the seal on marriage, becomes a commodity, performed on a screen, not for the benefit of the participants, but for the benefit of the person watching. That which God has given as a gift has become nothing but, pardon me for using Marxist terminology, nothing but a commodity. Something served up. Other people have become mere objects. Roger Scruton, one of my favorite philosophers, uh, sadly died. I had a bad period a couple of years ago. Every time I mentioned somebody in a lecture, they died that week. I mentioned Christopher Tolkien, and he died. I mentioned uh, uh, Neil Peart from the great rock band Rush. Todd and I went to their very last concert, I think, together. Uh, and he died. I mentioned Roger Scruton, and he died. It's sort of, you know, I have the kiss of death. Uh, if I don't like you, I'm just going to mention you in a lecture and you're finished at that point. But Roger Scruton has this interesting distinction. He says, pornography changes faces into bodies. I do this little experiment with uh, kids in class when I say to, there's always somebody in Grove in the, in the graduating year engaged. I'll say, anybody in this room engaged? And it's great when it's a couple because then you can really cause pain. If the guy and the girl are sitting next to each other and I, I'll say to the guy, uh, what first attracted you to, to your fiancé? And they think it's a trick question. So they hesitate. It's fantastic. They hesitate, and you see the color rising in the, in the, in the woman's face. And I would say to them, just tell me she was beautiful. That, that generally works, you know. Uh, 
But it's just a cruel experiment. But then I'll, I'll say to them, on the day of the wedding, you walk into the... Uh, yeah, you're up front. You're the guy up front. And uh, you hear the music change, and you can't resist at that point turning around to see your bride coming down the aisle. And you turn around. And it's not Jill, the girl you're engaged to. It's Davina. And she's beautiful and attractive. You can marry her. She's a nice person. You'll have a happy life with her. I said, do you go through with the ceremony? The answer, of course, the right answer is always no. And I've, I've always got that answer, particularly when the uh, one student, I think, said, I don't, I don't think so. And I said, I'm not sure that's, that's emphatic enough. But the reason they don't go through with it is because you're not marrying a body. In pornography, any body will do. You're marrying a face. You're marrying an individual. And only that individual will do. Pornography turns sex from something that's about faces into something that's about bodies. We see that. We see that, of course, in the biblical text itself. We could go to David and Bathsheba. Listen to what the text says, 2 Samuel 11:2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. She'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived... And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, I'm not interested in getting into debate about, is this a consensual adulterous affair, or, or is it a sexual assault, or whatever. That is an interesting debate to have, but I want to bracket that, set that aside at this point. What I want you to do is notice this. Notice the role of aesthetics. He saw. She was very beautiful. He took. Aesthetics and desire trump everything. Divorced from any broader moral context. Notice the depersonalization of Bathsheba. He saw a woman. The woman was very beautiful. He inquired about the woman. And the woman conceived. I think from memory I'm right in saying the next time she's referred to as Bathsheba is after Uriah has been murdered. She only has individual identity in the text in connection to Uriah. Not David. To David I think she's a body. Not a face. Notice Uriah, his significance, of course, in the story will be that as purely a problem. He represents a threat to David's feelings of happiness. He's a fly in the ointment to be disposed of accordingly. And notice, of course, the language of taking. Samuel warns the people of Israel uh, in 1 Samuel 8, of course. So I'm going to give you a king and he's going to take. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your lands. He's going to take, 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 take. And when we read that, our minds go to Saul. And certainly Saul was a great taker. Then we hit this point in the David narrative where suddenly for the first time David takes. And you realize that Samuel's prophetic utterance might apply to David a little bit as well. And it certainly carries our minds back to Genesis 3. She saw it was beautiful, she took. He saw she was beautiful, he took. David ceases to be king. He becomes one defined by his uncontrolled sexual desire. 
And that, I think, is paradigmatic of us all. We not only see ourselves sovereign today, we not only like to think that we can use our sovereignty as we see fit, with no greater concern for any larger authority than our fallen desire, but thanks to technology, that desire has been directed in a profoundly sexual direction. And just as an aside, I was asked a few weeks ago, I was in a discussion, I was giving a lecture down at Sanford University, and, and in discussion with faculty afterwards, somebody raised the question of, do you think that the, the sexual aspect of modern identity politics will go away? And I said, I, I, said, I don't think so. Uh, when you look at, say, racial identity politics, it seems to me that race is, is very clearly a, a social construct. Race was not a category in 1200. And I could see a point in the future where race will no longer be a category. I think sexual desire is hardwired into us. Hardwired into us. Not only does it play a dramatic role in many of the biblical narratives, I would suggest look at world literature. We can read the Iliad today and appreciate it and understand it because it touches on something that we can grasp. What is the Iliad? It's the story of one guy stealing another guy's wife and precipitating a 10-year war. We understand the dynamics of that because this element of desire, specifically sexual desire, I think is a hardy perennial of human existence. What has happened in a world where the inner psychological space has been so authorized that it now dominates everything is that that desire has become identity. Now, no longer is it just untrammeled desire. It's who we actually think and imagine ourselves to be. It's there in seed form in Eve. It's there in seed form in David. But now, powerful forces within our technological culture reinforce this idea that our sexual behavior and our ability to break with the mores and customs of the past is the assertion of who we really are. I want to close just briefly saying, let us not underestimate the potentially disastrous social consequences of what is going on around us. I don't have time to talk in detail about it this morning, but I think Freud is actually right on a number of points. His great little book, uh, Civilization and Its Discontents, makes the argument that sexual codes lie at the very heart of civilization. Freud was not actually a liberal libertine. He was pretty conservative in many ways. He saw sexual codes as very important. They're what make life livable. They define the fundamental building blocks of society. That means that when you live at a time where sexual codes are being overthrown, dismantled, inverted, you live at a very dangerous time for civilization. Sexual codes are not like marginal rates of income tax or legal ages for alcohol consumption. We can have strong opinions on those things. But whether the legal age for alcohol consumption is 18 or 21 does not make a whole lot of difference to the way society is organized. Sexual codes are different. When you change sexual codes, you change the very foundations of society. And that has implications across the board, as we are seeing now 
Uh, I'm giving this lecture on Saturday, and one of the points I'm going to make in this lecture is the sexual revolution is dismantling family authority completely and doing it under the banner of righteousness. That's the kind of thing that happens. Religiously, I think all uh, my own denomination is thankfully at this point not being roiled by the same debates that other uh, sister denominations are being roiled by. But I, as I said when I started this, I trust nobody on this issue who hasn't already strongly publicly declared themselves on it. I trust no institution on this issue that has not strongly publicly declared on it. It's been going on for long enough. I am under no illusion that my denomination could not very quickly be engulfed by this. It's why I pray that those denominations that are facing these kind of issues will come down on the right side because us smaller guys shelter under the wings of the bigger guys. It's not like changing a hymn book. It's not like updating, modernizing the language of the Bible or the confession. It strikes at the very heart of what it means to be a human being, of what it means to be a social organization. I'm going to talk about some of the ways we might think about addressing this in the next lecture, but I want to end with a powerful question posed by the rather weird but somewhat interesting uh, Russian Orthodox theologian Sergei Bolgakov. He wrote a great work, if somewhat eccentric, on the doctrine of Christ entitled The Lamb of God. And in the foreword to that book, he makes a statement, the imagery of which gripped my imagination when I read it. Drawing directly on the imagery of Genesis 3, he says this, A question slithers like a serpent over the earth. Whose world is it? The God-man's or the man-God's? Christ's or the Antichrist's? End quote. Well, I think the world is giving its answer. It believes it to be the man-God's. The challenge for the church, by teaching, by way of life, and by its worship, is to show her people first and the world second that it is the God-man's. Thank you for listening so patiently. We began the session a little earlier than scheduled due to my own um, inattention. But uh, so we will have a break after this next hymn until 10.35. But let's stand and sing a psalm. Let's turn to the psalms in response to this. 62, setting A.
pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, again we come to you seeking wisdom. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the comfort of your word. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in the reality of Christ's reign and of your sovereignty over all things. May we move forward in hope, but with greater wisdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.